out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon or evening, depending on your time zone, and welcome. I'm Joe Schuldenrein, your host, and thanks for tuning in to the third episode of our program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. First, let me extend my appreciation for all the feedback to last week's show on the American Southwest. We appreciate it. Our listeners expressed an especially strong interest in the great cliff dwellings at Mesa Verde. And a number of you responded along the lines of, I had no idea that this was such a complex society. So I thank my previous guests for providing their unique insights on the prehistory of this great landscape and its indigenous inhabitants. I want to encourage the audience to continue to send in emails and call in at 866-472-5788. Again, that number, 866-472-5788. Today's topic on the archaeology of New York City is one that is particularly near and dear to me. As an immigrant kid growing up in the late 1950s and 60s in what was then called somewhat disparagingly a changing neighborhood, I spent endless hours playing a local game called stoop ball in the streets with my friends. My mother's endless pleas to come upstairs and do your homework and learn like a good boy met with deaf ears until one day she tried a new approach and took me to the local museum so that I could, quote, learn things that will help me in life. Well, that was the American Museum of Natural History, and it was only a few blocks away. Once I walked through those immense doors and the colonnade and I saw that gigantic suspended blue whale, I was hooked, so to speak. Over the weeks, months, and years, I found myself drawn to this place, eventually spending much of my free time roaming the halls and even assisting my teachers on our yearly class trips. My mother, of course, was initially thrilled by all of this, although the enthusiasm somewhat waned as I passed into adulthood. The common refrain, if you don't get an education, you'll spend your life digging ditches, was turned on its ear by my life's career choice, but ultimately both my mother and I got over that. Over time, my own archaeological interests took me to many different parts of the world, but I eventually ended up back here in the Big Apple. 
ultimately I developed a strong interest in the archaeology of the city and in the unique problems presented by performing this work in one of the most crowded and valuable parcels of land anywhere on the planet. Perhaps even more significantly, the challenges archaeologists face in urban settings in this new century take us to realms that are significantly more complex than just digging up the past. The fact is you simply cannot dig up anything around here without encountering a labyrinth of complications that involve receiving permits and clearances, timing the work to minimize interference with the day-to-day operations of city life, mobilizing the support of countless interest groups, and yes, the voices of crusty politicians with agendas. On the ground, urban archaeology is a complex operation that involves assembling mounds of supporting information on an area of interest. You need to prove to regulatory or funding agencies that you know where suspected sites are, that they are worth researching, and that you are capable of doing the project. In this day and age, my own feeling is that the performance of archaeological work will increasingly focus on non-intrusive exploration and the applications of high-tech strategies to demonstrate that what you think is below the ground is really there. Moreover, the logistics complications and ultimately the cost of subsurface exploration is such that you better make sure you know what you're doing. In many, perhaps even most cases in New York and other metropolitan areas, site discovery is serendipitous, often exposed by construction workers who encounter historic or aboriginal remains in the course of preparing foundations. Any way you look at it, the practice of urban archaeology going forward looks to be an area of grand innovation and one that I think will change significantly in the future. This is no longer your father or mother's archaeology because of the changing nature of the urban environment in the 21st century. With me to discuss and navigate the contemporary archaeological terrain, if you will, are three prominent figures in the profession, all of whom have gained their professional stripes in New York City's rough-and-tumble world of cultural resources and heritage preservation. These folks represent the key segments of the practice, the private sector, the university sector, and the regulatory branch that oversees nearly all of the work in the city. My first guest, Joan Geismar, is an urban archaeologist who has been in private practice in the New York City metro area since 1981. Dr. Geismar has worked extensively on 18th and 19th century sites and buried ships. She is founder and past president of the Professional Archaeologists of New York City, known as PANIC. Joan is the author of numerous monographs and reports on the city's archaeological heritage and is one of the city's leading exponents on the practice of cultural resource management. Diana Desarega Wall is professor of anthropology at the City University of New York Graduate Center and has directed numerous projects in historic archaeology. She is currently excavating the site of Seneca Village in, of all places, Central Park. Dr. Wall is co-author of the award-winning book, Unearthing Gotham, the Archaeology of New York City, published in 2001. That volume is currently the seminal synthetic work on the archaeology of the city, and it examines the range of subsurface finds and discovery from historic to prehistoric times. My third guest, Amanda Sutphin, is Director of Archaeology, New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission, the LPC. The agency safeguards New York City's architectural, historical, and cultural heritage. Its archaeology department oversees the city's archaeological resources. Amanda has worked as an archaeologist in New York for over 16 years. She is one of the most influential figures in the city's regulatory community 
and is responsible for raising the profile of preservation and archaeology substantially over the past two decades. Thank you all so very much for being here. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for having us. Well, we'll get into the various aspects of archaeological practice in a bit, but Amanda, let me begin by turning to you about the most recent buzz in the city's community of archaeologists, and wider, I might add, and that would concern the discovery of the big ship in the vicinity of the World Trade Center site. Obviously, that attracted international attention, not only because of the find itself, but where, is, where it was found. Why don't you give us a little history on what happened, how the site was discovered, and how it emerged for public consumption and what we know about it and where that work is going. Okay, well, archaeological monitoring was occurring during the World Trade Center um, excavations because the subject, the project is subject to uh, several environmental review laws. And uh, the archaeologists realized that uh, something was coming out. They were there monitoring, and they identified what turned out to be a ship, uh, a remnant of a ship, about 30 feet down. And uh, they were very excited and they quickly alerted everyone what had been found, and we went to see it. We could see it was one small remnant of uh, what had been a late 18th century ship. How did and, they come um, upon this? How did they, how did they originally find it? Um, they were doing excavations for a new, there's a new area that's being subsumed into what will be the World Trade Center, and so they were excavating about 30 feet down in what had been a street bed. And this is a developer? It is the uh, Port Authority, ultimately. It's, it's a government agency that's developing the, this portion of the site. Okay. So they found it, or construction workers found it? Can, well, the, it was identified by archaeologists. There were archaeological ah. monitors there. So okay, construction great. was going on, but it was archaeologists who realized what was happening, and they're the ones who stopped work right in that area and called in everyone else. Okay, and once they discovered it and they started exposing it piece by piece, then what happened? They realized the size and monumental nature of this thing, and then what happened? Correct. Well, they brought in a maritime archaeologist, Warren Reese, who advised them about how to proceed, and they deconstructed it piece by piece, and conservators were on hand to ensure that as each piece came out, it was appropriately treated, and then it was removed from the site. And then another section was found this past summer, during excavations on um, at, the, at another part uh, of the site, which they only started doing this past summer. And so they found the other end of the ship, and um, that came out in the same way. And now those are at the um, in, in Texas A&M. Okay, so you have several parties involved with this. You have the archaeologists, you have the developer, you have you as a regulator. How yeah, do they you have all several government that? entities, yes. You have the Port Authority right. and you have the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation. You have So you have many different levels of government involved as well. As would be typical of New York City, a huge bureaucracy and a lot of people trying to do similar sorts of things and trying to make sure that the process works. So how do all these groups interact? Well, this site is particularly um, because there's there's a very elaborate um, programmatic agreement that was developed for de for work at the site. So there's over 60 groups that need to be consulted about what to do with with the ship remnant. Um, so that process is just beginning now. So right now the remnants are being kept stable in Texas, but decisions still need to be made about what's ultimately going to happen to it. So if your viewers are interested, I'd highly recommend getting in touch with the Lower Manhattan Development Corps and, and just letting them know what you think should happen with it. 
And how do they interact? I mean, you've got so many different layers. Uh, who directs the actual flow of activity as to how the, the, uh, the excavation continues or how the analysis proceeds and, and, and what the really the future of this find in terms of preservation is, is, uh, is related to? The other thing that, that's obviously of some concern is what does this do to the actual development of the project area? Does it hold it up? Does it, does it uh, put it on a delay? How does that work? Um, well, the, the other key regulatory agency that's involved is the State Office of Historic Preservation, and so, of course, they weigh in as well to, to safeguard the site. Um, as for holding it up, um, it's true. I mean, there, there was some time that was spent deconstructing the ship and then removing it, um, but while that occurred, construction continued on other parts of the site. So I don't know that they really lost that much time. Um, but right but right now it's going on. The excavation and development is proceeding, and the entire ship's been removed? Or yes, how's that correct. Work? correct. Okay. Correct. And so... And uh, removed, I just want to know, they, they did do um, 3D modeling so that we can digitally recreate exactly the whole site as it was found. Tell us a little so bit more about, about high that. Tech, you were talking about high-tech techniques yes, that are now being used. So this is an example. And in addition, the New York Times did... Um, panoramic photography of the the removal of the first remnant that was found in 2010 and that's i believe still on the new york times website so the listeners can actually go to that website and get additional information on that correct it's nytimes.com okay um we will uh begin to discuss some additional elements about the discovery of boats. I know boats are an especially, uh, if not common occurrence, certainly along the city's shoreline. They are not infrequently found, and we will discuss that in our next segment and proceed to other elements of archaeological discovery in New York City. We're back after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Explore the power and beauty in yourself and in others. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you. Every week, Stacy Stern will connect you with men and women who are living and working from a place of passion. Stacy's guests include successful authors, filmmakers, actors, experts, and leaders. You'll hear what inspires each of them, and you'll be turned on to great films, books, and new media. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you, Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's all about action. Scores. Taking a look at the NBA tonight. Highlights. He's broken loose. He's at the 30. And headlines. Big trade in the NFL this afternoon. When you are looking to talk sports, look no further than the Voice America Sports Network. We bring you some of the biggest names and all the sports news you can handle. Whether it's basketball. Off the glass. Football. Come on. Football. Golf. Racing. Or the Olympics. We've got you covered. We'll even cover tailgating. Tune in to the Voice America Sports Network. It's all things sports. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Thanks. We're back. Uh, we were talking about the discovery of the big boat at the site of the uh, World Trade Center here in New York City. Um, years ago, 30 years ago to be uh, precise, uh, archaeological excavations in the city and elsewhere in urban environments was done com- in a completely or, or at least a somewhat different manner than it is today. Uh, Joan Geismar was involved in one of the most major excavations of a ship. Um, 30 years ago, Joan, can you give us a little bit of information about the discovery that you made and how the procedure went? Yes, listening to Amanda describe the World Trade Center ship made me realize just how different things were 30 years ago. Uh, the, the similarity is that uh, Landmarks was involved, and the, the other similarity is that Warren Reese was involved. But otherwise, things were very different. First of all, it was a private developer. It wasn't... Uh, it wasn't a, an agency that was doing any development, and uh, there weren't all these mechanisms in place once something like that was found. They sort of had to be made, something like that being a ship, they sort of had to be uh, made up as we went along and, and to a degree. This ship was the ship that I'm talking about, which was named the Ronson after develop, the developer who had to pay for everything because we never did find a name for the ship, was found... Um, Again, a little serendipitously, this, this, because there are no records about ships like this. These ships, if, the, if these, either of these ships had been in a slip, a city slip, you know, where the boats came in, for city, they would have been documented. But since they were not, they, they were serendipitous finds. We, we didn't know that they existed. Our ship, the one at 175 Water Street on the east side of Manhattan, was found just doing a deep test. We were trying to discover just how deep the landfill was. The dirt fell away out of the backhoe operator because the backhoe is an urban archaeologist's best friend. You can't remove all the debris of past buildings without a backhoe. Asked where he should put the last test. I pointed to a spot, and he dug. The dirt fell away, and we saw wood. And we thought at the time that it was uh, cribbing to hold the landfill in because this block of 175 Water Street was the second block of landfill going east from Pearl Street. There's another block now after it that goes to South Street. So we just assumed it was cribbing. And, in fact, it was cribbing, but it was a 92-foot ship, um, a merchant vessel, it turned out, that was pulled in and tied into cribbing. It was a derelict ship, but it had... Uh, it had many parts. It had uh, remnants of deck of two decks and um, a, a bowsprit, and which is where the the um, uh, figurehead would have been um, attached and when it pulled into port. And things, as I say, were very different. We didn't have three-dimensional photography. Instead, each plank of, of the ship, every single board, was numbered as it was exposed and taken out and photographed. 
and it's vicious. Joan, Joan, let me interrupt you just for one second. How did you know where and how to go about doing this excavation? What guided you and what, what moved you from one area to the other and, and how you could uh, systematically proceed to undertake this recovery? Because you didn't know how exactly it was aligned and where to go. No, but, you, uh, well, first of all, we called in an expert. I called in a man named uh, Norman Brower who took one look and said, oh, you have the port side of a ship. Oh, you have the port side midsection of a ship. He could tell just by looking at the planks. Then we right. called in people again from Texas A&M, and Warren Reese was one of them. And um, they had they then took over. These uh, nautical archaeologists had the experience, I think, for the first time, of excavating a ship on land because it was in landfill. And uh, they were the experts who actually did the, the testing. For me, it was the most important artifact that we found at, at that site, that site being a, an entire city block. And uh, this was on the south, what was it, the southeast corner of that block, partially under what is now Front Street, but mainly on our block. So okay. for me, it was the most most exciting thing was that this ship was part of the cribbing that created that block. To the, archaeology, the nautical archaeologists, it was the ship itself. And How long that, did that excavation go? It went on for, I think, about six weeks, and uh, some of the land archaeologists who had been working on the block uh, itself became nautical archaeologists, and each plank was taken away uh, some of it was kept from the from the bow, and it theoretically could be reconstructed. It's been swimming in polyethylene glycol for 30 years down at uh, Newport News, Virginia, in the Maritime Museum there. But the rest of the land of the ship that was taken out, all those boards after being photographed, numbered, etc., have been carted off to the Fresh Kills landfill, where it'll be discovered. They'll be discovered in 200 years, and then some archaeologists will try to explain what all these ships' boards are doing on a landfill site so there will be the archaeology of archaeology somewhere will be along the, the archaeology, line and they'll never be able to figure it out I'm okay afraid. so we so we understand now how extensive uh ship this, uh, how extensively uh archaeological work has been done over the course of time and that ships are clearly one of the major 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 finds that we, we would find in this area obviously because this is one of the larger ports in the world Could but I just let's ask amanda a quick question about the ship that she was talking about mm-hmm. was that course, one sure. also put in place to hold landfills away yes and land? i should have explained that yes yes the area where it was found had been the hudson river and then they used the ship. Now, whether it was intentionally used for landfill or accidentally used for landfill, they haven't determined that yet. You mean yeah. it wasn't tied into bulkheads the way Jones Correct. was? Correct. And I believe uh, beyond that, this, the World Trade Center ship was uh, perpendicular, to the, uh, perpendicular to the shore, whereas the 175 Water Street or Ronson ship was parallel to the shore and was, you know, and was tied in, uh, to cribbing, as Diane said. Uh-huh. There was also that ship that was discovered under those two buildings in the uh, South Street Seaport Museum. Exactly. Also used to tie in, you know, for to hold the landfill in place. Right, which is still there. Yeah, yeah, that one is still there. Yeah, and I, and one of the uh, nautical archaeologists, uh, Sherry, uh, I'm sorry, Shelley Smith, had said that she can only imagine how many ships there are along the shore. Yeah. Or functioning in some way. Diana, why don't you give us a little bit of background since you uh, undertake a lot of academic research and you know quite a bit about the history of archaeology in New York City. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on how archaeological study began in the city and how it uh, developed over the years? Okay. Uh, The archaeological study of New York can really be divided into two different periods. 
one is before the 1970s and the other is the 1970s and more recently, obviously. Related to historic preservation law and practice, Related to the historic preservation legislation, yeah. All of the work that was done in the area before the 1970s, I just lied. Most of the work that was done in the area (laughs) before the 1970s was done by avocational archaeologists. And I think that the avocational archaeologists... In other words, people who were not professionally trained haven't really gotten the credit that they deserve. It was they who particularly have given us everything, almost everything that we know about the Native American sites in the area. It was the 11-year-old son of one of these avocational archaeologists who discovered a Paleo-Indian spear point at a site in Staten Island. Paleo-Indian sites are the oldest sites that we have in this area. And uh, this is the only Paleo-Indian site that we have in, uh, in New York City. So we should talking- interject that, that Paleo-Indian is the oldest accepted period of human occupation in North America, although there's argument about that, but we really don't have the potential for finding a lot of that in the urban area. So uh, that's no, a major, major find. And particularly in an area where the glaciers retreated uh, you know, more recently than they didn't, obviously, in other parts of the country and other parts of the country where they didn't cover, they didn't cover the right. mass. Okay, and so so, uh, so, so these avocationals so, have been really important. Uh, the ones that I have to say are my favorite are uh, William Calvert and Reginald Bolton, who did a lot of work uh, beginning around the turn of the 20th century up through the 1930s. And another group was led by Ralph Selecki, who went on to become a famous archaeologist digging Neanderthal sites in Iraq. But and he's still he, alive today? He's still alive today. He's in his 90s. And he went out with his friends when he was like 15, 16 years old in the 1930s. And what both Calvert and Bolton and the Ralph Selecki group did was they heard of areas where the... Uh, the city was being developed, where land was being graded to put in streets and all of that kind of thing. And what they would do is they would go out and they would check for literally, you know, right ahead of the bulldozers, they would check for uh, any archaeological sites that might be destroyed. I, I want to stress that Native American sites are particularly fragile, and they they tend to be relatively close to the surface of the ground. And what that means is that as the city has been developed, you know, thousands and thousands of Native American sites have been destroyed. So what we know about the Native American presence here really comes from these avocational archaeologists. Mm-hmm. They, Diana, they, don't get want... me wrong. They were also interested in some of uh, the sites that were left by European Americans, for example, Revolutionary War sites, sites associated with George Washington, colonial period sites, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, mm-hmm. their contribution was particularly important in talking about the uh, the Native American sites. And, Diana, you might want to also add Allenson Skinner, who worked a lot. Well, Allenson Skinner and uh, Damus, Amos Onerode and M.R. Harrington, they were professional archaeologists. They were the exceptions. To, early on. Yeah, yeah, in the very early 20th century, they working variously for the Museum of Natural History and also for the High Foundation, the Museum of the American Indian. Mm-hmm. So, so the archaeological foundations of New York City archaeology were well in, well set and in place 
prior to the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966, and as you indicated, after that time, things changed a bit. Tell us a little bit about that. Things changed considerably. Well, I shouldn't say, we shouldn't say after the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966, because it really took a while to trickle down to the city. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, we said the Historic Preservation Act of 1966, the first large-scale excavation that was done in New York City uh, uh, because uh, it was required by a city entity was only in 1979. In other words, there was a lot of resistance to doing these projects in the city. Projects in the city, as you guys mentioned before, can be really expensive, well, you have to bring in the bulldozers and things like that. We're talking about, you know, unions and heavy equipment and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. It can really add up, needless to say. So resistance on the part of? So there was resistance on the part of developers, but there was also the uh, idea that, well, could there be anything preserved in a city like New York? Mm-hmm. And so finally in the mid-70s, when uh, because, because other archaeologists in other parts of the country were beginning to do some work, and there had been some professional finds made in excavations done in Philadelphia. In the mid-1970s, the Landmarks Preservation Commission began to think, well, gee, maybe we should uh, check out what's going on in terms of the archaeology, particularly in Lower Manhattan. Lower Manhattan, the Wall Street district, one of the most heavily urbanized areas of the world. However, in terms of the European presence here, it's also the oldest. In other words, that was Dutch New Amsterdam, if you see what I mean. So Landmark's role was still sort of evolving at this time as the archaeological work was sort of expanding and there had to be this interaction between the regulators and the archaeologists that was just sort of developing a foundation, correct? Yes. What the Landmark's Preservation Commission did was they approached the archaeological community and said that they were interested in doing this. And so then, you know, uh, in, in having basically a test case. And they had already chosen the area where they wanted to do a test case because it was a block in lower Manhattan over which they had a lien. In other words, there had been a landmark building on that property. And the landmark building had years ago been uh, torn down with the condition that it would be set up again, built again somewhere else. And in the meantime, a lot, uh, large parts of the building, unfortunately, had been lost. So they had to do something else. The developer had to do something else to be able to remove that landmark lien on that property. And so what they were able to propose was that, oh, you can do an archaeological excavation instead, and then you'll be fine and you'll get your certificate of occupancy and all of that kind of stuff. We'll We'll resume this in a few minutes. We have to go to break, but we will talk about the emergence and the fluorescence of New York City archaeology after the 1970s after we return from break. We'll be back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. 
host, Simran Singh, will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio, because shift happens. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. Joe Schildenrein hosting the show, uh, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and the Archaeology of the 21st Century. We were talking about the relationship between archaeological excavation and the emergence of preservation law and a preservation ethos, if you will, uh, in, after the 1970s. Uh, Diana, you were talking about the relationship between those two elements, regulation and excavation and archaeological practice at a particular site called the Stathoi site. Can you just uh, tell us, continue a little bit more along those veins? That's right. The Landmarks Preservation uh, Commission had identified a site that they wanted to use as a case study. And what that, uh, what that site was, was, as you said, the Stathouse site. The, this was a block in lower Manhattan, which uh, is now the site of 85 Broad Street, until just recently, the headquarters of Goldman Sachs. Uh, however, in the 17th century, that block had been the site of the first Dutch city hall, which had been built as a tavern in the 1640s and had continued to serve as the city hall until the end of the 17th century, in other words, under both the Dutch and then uh, later on over uh, under the uh, English as well. So we were given an opportunity, Nan Rothschild and I, to direct excavations on that site, which we did. And we were very nervous because we felt if we found nothing, that would mean that would have repercussions in terms of archaeology in New York City. 
However, if we found something, then hopefully the Landmarks Preservation Commission would feel that it was worthwhile to go out on a limb and uh, you know work this into the uh, preservation process. So this is your trial balloon, really? Exactly, exactly. Our test case, yeah. So what was re- uh, I, those of us who've worked in urban archaeology, we know for the most part you fear finding nothing, but what in fact you find is too much. And that was what happened, of course, to us. (laughs) But the most exciting thing that we found, we did not find any traces of the remains of the Stathouse itself, the city hall itself, but we did find tens of thousands of artifacts from a late 17th century tavern that had been built in 1670. And so that was really wonderful. Don't get me wrong, we also found a lot of other things, too, dating to the 18th century and the 19th century. But because that uh, excavation was so successful, the Landmarks Preservation Commission did work archaeology into the preservation regulations. What happened with the artifacts? The artifacts from that site are at Columbia. They're in the William Duncan Strong Museum there, where anyone can go to see them. Were they analyzed? They were analyzed. The report was submitted to Landmarks, yes. Okay, Amanda, tell us a little bit of how the Landmarks Preservation Commission and the other regulatory agencies interact, and and how was this test case something that paved the way for additional uh, compliance uh, in the city and possibly even beyond? Okay, well, in the beginning, Landmarks itself was founded in 1965, and it was really the, the destruction of Pennsylvania Station, which at the time was considered New York's grandest building. And instead, they built a train station that I don't think anyone would consider New York's grandest building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the commission <laughs> was founded um, to, to protect the city's historic and architectural resources. The beginning, the emphasis really was on the oldest buildings, like the Flushing Meeting House in Queens, which dates to 1694, um, and beautiful buildings, you know, like the Beaux Arts um, New York Public Library, which was built in 1911. And slowly, the commission started to designate other things and started to, to consider more the historic importance of sites as well. And certainly, uh, the Stadhuis excavation was a turning point for the commission. Um, but I'd argue that it actually was the designation of the African Burial Ground and Commons Historic District in 1993, which is a city archaeological historic district where we regulate all subsurface work that was truly a watershed for Landmark's uh, relationship with archaeology. Okay. Uh, Joan, you were also doing archaeology at the time, and how do you find that it affected you once Landmark's got increasingly involved? Well, I'm forever grateful to Landmark's, and so should the archaeology of New York City be grateful. Uh, I'm just going to step back for for a moment. After that test case down in, in uh, the Stathuis, um, what I like to call the golden age of archaeology started in lower Manhattan because there was one major site after another beginning in 1979 and up through about 19, I guess, 84 or so. There was a great deal of development going on in lower Manhattan, where, as Diana said, it was the, where um, New Amsterdam, had the lo- location of New Amsterdam, the first settlement of, of Manhattan Island by the uh, Dutch, um, and th- that really started, uh, we just had one major site after another, many of them landfill sites, many, a couple of them inland, some of them with Dutch components, usually multi-component because they, because of New York's, uh, uh, propensity to build and build and build. You had the old and then the newer and the newer and the newest. And, uh, 
one of those sites was the 175 Water Street site that I discussed before, where, as I say, it said then the most spectacular artifact was the ship, that 92-foot merchant vessel that had gun ports, so, and we knew where it came from because of um, the ship's um, sheathing that had uh, Caribbean ship berms in it, that casings in it, that kind of thing. But we also had 310,000 artifacts from the backyard area of that block, plus tons and tons of weighed material. I mean, we just had so much material to learn about trade, about uh, people's lives, all kinds of things. And that was a spectacular site, one of many. Diana had a site right next door, the Atelco site, also another landfill site, but different from this site. No ship, different uh, wharves. We were learning about techniques used in the, in the 18th century to build to build out into the river and reclaim land, things that I don't think we had even thought about much before. So we were learning all kinds of things. And every site, um, and as I say, that was to me the golden age of archaeology because things then slowed down with the economy and all kinds of things over the years. But we still have had many sites that have, uh, many of them, most of them have come through the landmarks, uh, through their review process, uh, identifying that there could be something there when the review process is opened up. Otherwise, there is no archaeology or usually no archaeology. A developer is not going to usually say, please come do archaeology on my site. Let's find out what's there before we build something. He has to be told that he, has, he or she has to do that. And with this, so these watershed moments are very, very critical, they're obviously. Very, they're critical, and they prove over and over again that there is reason to do archaeology, but that isn't enough reason to do archaeology. It has to be regulated in, in, in some way. And uh, So, with, so let's go to one of the key mo- watershed moments in, in archaeology in the past 20 years, and that would be the African-American burial ground. The African-American um, ground. American burial ground. Yes, the African burial ground. Um, right. That I just want. I I don't know if I should talk about that, but I do want to say that that's one of the few sites, and I just I can't stress this enough, where work was actually stopped on a building. Archaeology often gets a bad rap that it stopped this, that it held this up, that it you know all kinds of bad things. Only at the African burial ground was the site actually. Um, were the fines enough to stop the building of the site by the government in this case uh, when, the, when the burial ground was discovered and real, it was realized that it went on much further than, much more extensive than they realized. Uh, Walk us uh, through that, will you? The, the African burial ground? Uh, Correct, yeah. uh, that, no, that wasn't my site, but it was a very exciting site. And one of the reasons, the, uh, and it wasn't that... that one of the things that is one of my pet peeves is when you read in the newspaper about some of these spectacular sites and it says construction workers found this site. Well, most of the times, the World Trade Center site, the, um, the boat was found by construction workers, but they were being monitored by archaeologists. That's often left out. And with the African burial ground, it was not an unknown. It was known that it was there. There had been extensive research done. It's just that there also had been buildings built on that site over the years with 10-foot deep basements. So the logical conclusion was that anything that had been there was gone. What wasn't taken into account is something near and dear to your heart, Joe, the fact of what the, uh, the geological layout of that land was. And the fact was that it had been a ravine that had been filled in. And that's why there was still something left, because although the buildings were at ground level, that ravine contained the the, the remnants of that African burial ground. It was a late 18th century 
Am I saying that right? Late the late seventeenth century, early eighteenth right. century burial ground, and it was out of town, and uh, it was where uh, slaves and freed blacks were buried over uh, for almost a century, I guess, and uh, and then it was built over, and then it was found. And someone's going to have to give me the year. Is it nineteen ninety one? Yes, nineteen ninety one. It was discovered. Uh, they found one or two uh, burials in, a, in an alleyway where they thought there might be a remnant of the original ground surface, and then it turned out that those burials went on and on because that ground surface had sloped down, as I said. And I believe that there were uh, 400-some-odd burials that were taken out. Right. And, mm-hmm. right. and now it is part of that site where the government was going to build part of its building. I think it was going to be a garage, actually. Uh, was stopped ultimately because of the input of the of the um, black community in New York that felt very strongly about this, and the government uh, finally listened to what was being said, and it's now a very, very, very uh, touching and effective memorial on that site that was going to be part of the building. We'll be back and continue with our discussions on the African burial ground and move on to some other issues related to stakeholders, the public, and legislation in archaeology, and ultimately, who pays for all of this after these words. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, Radio to Thrive By. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra geoarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back, uh, Joe Schuldenrein, your host. Uh Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and Archaeology in the 21st Century. Uh, we were talking about the African burial ground in lower Manhattan and the fact that this was an enormous project 
that should have been undertaken and should have been and people should have been alerted to the potential of that huge burial ground well in advance of when they actually did it there was there was a considerable trove of archival material that indicated the presence of what was called at the time a negro's burial ground in the vicinity of a uh, slackwater or swampy environment, which is where poor people were buried in the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, my own firm was involved in that project, and we did a reconstruction of the landscapes that existed at the time and effectively created a map that uh, was a synthesis or a compilation of maps from the 17th and 18th century that could have given incredibly important advance notice to the developers of the sensitivity of this area. It wasn't handled very well. There was a lot of time in, and money involved in the delays of uh, the excavations and the performance of the actual work itself. Uh, it's a lesson for the future, I think, but one of the most important elements that came out of that work was the involvement of the public and communities in the archaeology that affects them in terms of their heritage and their traditions. And so one of my questions to uh, Amanda would be, how do you integrate the public more into the compliance process that you're responsible and promote the message of archaeology? How do we get all these different groups, developers, stakeholders, professionals and the general public, how do we get them involved in this process so that we're not looked at as a necessary annoyance in the growth of the city? Okay, well, one pretty immediate uh, result of, of the African burial ground is, is now it really is a, a standard that whenever there could be any potential for burials, we really do insist that research be done to try and identify any descendant group or church or so on uh, who may... Uh, have a particular attachment to a burial ground, and that they be involved with decisions about what happens at that site. And um, that, that's certainly a big change. Um, as for trying to get the message out about archaeology in general, I think that that's an, that's an ongoing um, issue. Um, one thing we did, which I actually, for your interested readers, I do want to let people know, is all the archaeology reports that have been done for the city have been scanned, and they're now available on our website at nyc.gov slash landmarks. And, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it is difficult, though, getting uh, that what we're learning out to the larger public. Um, and we're, we are always seeking ways to, to, to have people be interested in their past. Diana, how do you see the message of archaeology getting through to students and other members of the community who actually have expressed that they have interest in this and that they want to preserve their heritage and their traditions and they want to see that the archaeology will effectively form a bridge between their own view of history and uh, the professional world? Are you speaking particularly in terms of the African burial ground? And beyond. And beyond. I think that um, this is something that archaeologists are always castigating themselves about, and probably quite rightly, which is that they really do not connect with the public enough. Uh, in other words, that there is there's the, the information that the archaeologists are learning is not, for the most part, being transmitted. Uh, it is being transmitted somewhat to students, 
uh, but not to the general public in any very important way. I think that an exception to that could have been the African burial ground, and I'm saying that because I think one of the, the reasons the burial ground was so important was it made us uh, Americans aware that there was slavery in the North. We used to just sort of assume that there was no slavery in the North, no slavery in New York City. I grew up going to public schools here, and I never learned that there had been slavery here. But finding the burial ground just made it hit, it hit people right between the eyes that there, there was, in fact, slavery in the North. So, I, But I think that that's an unusual instance of a, an excavation having that kind of impact on the public. Well, we know that this does have a tremendous impact on uh, the descendants of people whose remains and discoveries are found. I mean, uh, we talked about this last week in the Southwest, where Native Americans have a very, obviously, a very strong and direct connection to uh, prehistoric Indian groups, and that the lineage, lineages, in some cases, cannot be traced directly, but there's certainly a continuum. And the African, the African burial ground certainly raised the consciousness within the African American community, and they, they made very strong statements about that. And as a result of that, there are some very interesting programs that are ongoing. For example, the DNA matching program that tries to establish a connection between uh, African American Americans and their possible ancestors that came over forcefully from the African continent. So we're seeing some developments in that, and I think that's very important. Mm -hmm. One of the other issues that I want to touch on, and, and this is really critical in a place like New York, and this is an email that we've gotten, how do we minimize the antipathy between developers and archaeology in a community where everything has to move fast and where every minute costs a fortune? Joe, would you answer that question? No, I'm teasing. If only we could answer that question. It's a very, very difficult question to answer. I, I don't see any um, easing of the developer versus the archaeologist issue in, in the 30 years that I've been doing archaeology. As I said earlier, no developer asks to do archaeology. It's only because they have to do it that they do it, no matter what that site might have. On the other hand, I will also say that when that ship was found at 175 Water Street, even though the developer was paying for it, he sort of got excited. The act of discovery can't help but being exciting, but the antipathy is I don't know how one can erase it. Amanda, any thoughts on that? Because you're sort of at the nexus of all of this. Well, one thing I try to emphasize is that um, developers can get very positive public relations. I mean, people are very excited about archaeology, and they can be viewed more favorably by a public who may not be thrilled with a new project, which is almost always the case in New York City. <laughs> New Yorkers as a whole do not like new development <laughs> projects. We're so all snickering here. Positive yeah. press. So I try to try to emphasize that, and then. You know, sometimes when they realize that the, their new neighbors are excited about their project because of the archaeology, it, it does break some of that, that um, oh. dislike Joe, of, of archaeology. I'm sorry. Joe, may I say something? Actually, I had an interesting experience in, uh, in, in Quebec City just recently where um, a developer, a hotel developer, was very, very pro-archaeology and was clever enough to use everything that he had to do in his new development to make it. He actually used it as his art. He used it as a, as a as a theme for his, and I don't mean a Walt Disney theme. I mean a very elegant and beautiful theme in his hotel. And I was very impressed with his use of the archaeological history. He re reconstructed. He made his his hotel something that he knew how to m 
get payback from what he had to pay for his archaeology. He did a spectacular job. I wish he could send out that message to more developers. It's a lesson well learned, I, I hope. Uh, it's just lovely. that our climate is a little bit different from that at Quebec City. So I think we need to spread our message around, and I think we need to promote the fact that public relations only favor archaeology and certainly can bridge the connection between what we do, the public, and the developers. But trying to develop a strategy is, is it's kind of difficult for that, as, as you say. Amanda, do you see any future uh, progress in that relationship and dynamic. Are we making progress here? I think we are, but it, you know, when, it, from day to day, it's 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 hard to see. It's just when you look back over what's happened. You know, what's happened since the African burial ground district was designated. What's happened since it was it was found. What's happened since the Stadhuis excavation. I mean, there really has been a tremendous change. Where now it's really become a matter of course that for discretionary actions. We do consider what archaeology might be at the site and try to ensure that the appropriate thing is done. That certainly was not what was standard in the 1960s. So, I mean, that in and of itself is really a good thing. But and on that note, can be on done. that note, I'm afraid I have to cut in. We're going to have to end. Oh, okay. I want to thank thank my guests, Joan Geismar, Diana Wall, Amanda Sutphin, for providing us insights on the archaeology at one of the most complex settings for undertaking this work, and that would be the urban maze that is known as New York City. Next week, we'll explore the emergence of urban archaeology in one of the earliest urban incarnations in the New World at the Midwestern Mound Complex of Cahokia, Illinois. We'll examine how this first city of North America grew along the rich floodplains in the Mississippi Valley. Our guests will include Terry Norris of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and Bill Eisminger, the Assistant Director of the Cahokia State Museum and Park Complex. Until then, thanks so much for listening, and remember that your understanding of the past is a guide to a more promising tomorrow. Thank you, and signing off, this is Joe Schuldenrein, Indiana Jones, Myth Reality, and the Archaeology of the 21st Century. Thank you very much. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.